Welcome to Can't Make This Up. I'm your host, Kevin. It may have seemed a little quiet this month since it's been about four weeks since I've published an episode, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I've been vigorously reading some new great history books and interviewing some guests for the show. I am very excited to be sharing with you the absolute latest work from some grade A historians. For example, the book we're going to be talking about today is hot off the presses and just released this week. So let's dive right into it. Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, Henry, Hancock. The founding fathers of the United States are many, but the two names that loom large above the rest are Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. Countless biographies have been written about the two indispensable men, but my guest today has extensively studied the 30-year relationship between them. Edward J. Larson holds a Ph.D. in the history of science and is currently a professor of history and law at Pepperdine University. He has written several books on American scientific history, as well as on the American Revolution and Early Republic. Ed's latest book, Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership, explores how the Pennsylvania printer and Virginia planter first met during the French and Indian War, how they became integral to the success of the American independence movement, and why the new nation turned to them when it came time to draft the U.S. Constitution. After the show, check out this episode's show notes at www.cmtuhistory.com, and then if you like today's episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave the show a review. Those reviews are an excellent source of word-of-mouth marketing, that helps spread awareness about the show and let people know what kind of history we do here on the podcast. Now on to my interview with Edward Larson. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school Ed Larson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Well, um, if you would be so kind, uh, if you could introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, I understand first off you are a fellow Ohioan like myself. Yep, I was born and raised in uh, Mansfield, Ohio. One of my classmates, if you still live in Ohio, one of my classmates is now a senator from Ohio. Mansfield is where John Sherman came from, but it's also where, who was a great historic senator who did, among other things, the Sherman Antitrust Act. His brother was William Tecumseh, so don't let me um, scare off any um, um, Southerners with that. William Tecumseh, (laughs) Sherman of March to the Sea fame, did not come from Mansfield, but now Sherrod Brown comes from Mansfield. He's the current senator. Okay, well, very good. You have a connection to some uh, current politics and history going on. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about your work, you have an extensive career in history, including a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Yeah, I am uh, trained as a historian of science from another Midwestern state, University of Wisconsin-Madison, where my PhD is from. And I work on the intersection of law, politics, science, technology, so work in those areas, so they sort of the overlap. Uh, I've written books about um, um, 
voyages of exploration and also about the colonial era and also about legal history. So in the colonial era, era I have, or early national period, I have one on the, the um, election of 1800, the magnificent catastrophe is the name of the book, and another one on um, George Washington's um, middle years. And then this book is a um, that's just coming out is on called Franklin in Washington, and it's a joint biography of the two indispensable patriots of the revolutionary era. Well, I'll ask you a question um, that comes directly from your book. Uh, I'll ask you why Benjamin Franklin and George Washington? Why not Franklin and Hamilton, or um, Washington and Hamilton, or Franklin and Jefferson? Uh, a couple of pairings that we more commonly see in um, historical works from this period because they've been done uh, I don't I like to do new things I like to take to tackle new challenges and I teach history as well and I look for gaps if somebody's already done something I mean Ron Chernow has a fine book about Hamilton we uh, I would be a load to try to do better um, and don't see any need to but you're right, the more standard uh, pairings in that sense, classic hierarchical teams, um, George Washington or Hamilton, yes, and Jefferson and Madison would be a hierarchical team that worked together. Uh, you have the team of rivals of under Lincoln. But that's a different sort of, of, of working partnership. What you've got with um, Franklin and Washington, you've got truly the two people who are universally depicted as the indispensable Americans. It doesn't matter what historian you look at. You can look at Alice, or you can look at um, Chernow, or you can look at um, um, who, who wrote on both Hamilton and Washington, or you can go back to earlier, Flexner, the historians, you can look to Isaacson. Uh, they all say, they all agree on one thing, that the two indispensable Americans to make the revolution work were uh, Franklin and Washington. Um, that without them, each of them doing their contributing their own special uh, contribution, that the revolution just wouldn't have worked when it did. Now, they were also uh, obviously worked together because they had the same basic goals. They were both um, um, committed to independence, early converts early committed in that sense they're like john adams they're early converts to independence way before hamilton jumps on the bandwagon and uh so they were similar in that respect they both were famous throughout the empire at least franklin was world famous washington was known in england and in america widely uh before the revolution and that puts them in a whole different category from Jefferson and Adams and Hamilton. Nobody knew who those people were outside their hometowns and their regional areas. So they both, and they both had risen to the ranks that they were two of the wealthiest people in America at the time of the revolution. And that they're like John Hancock, for example, who's also a backer of the revolution, a fairly early backer at that. Um, so you have these you have these two very important people backing the revolution early and playing a central role. And you're wondering, as a historian, as a history teacher, I'm wondering, how do they work together? Uh, they must have worked together in some way. And since nobody had looked into that pairing, I thought I would. 
and I started exploring that pairing, figuring how did these work together. So if you want a comparison, sure, you can always do a, a Washington and Hamilton. It's been done. It's been done well. But think of other pairings. It's not always a hierarchical pairing. It's it, there. There have been very important pairings. Think of Roosevelt and Churchill in World War II. Mm -hmm. Now, they wouldn't have worked. World War II would not have worked. Hitler would not have been defeated, but for Churchill and Roosevelt. And they, but they were not. They were an equal pairing. They were not a hierarchical pairing. They didn't do each other's biddings. They had a joint cause to which they submitted themselves and worked hand and glove together. There, of course, there are countless other people like that that work together. And that's the sort of pairing you have in Washington and Franklin. Well, that makes this a very compelling book, because when we look at a lot of these figures, we tend to silo them apart from the other characters that they're working with. Um, so this was very enjoyable to see what that relationship was. So where did this partnership begin? Uh, these two uh, gentlemen first were connected during the French and Indian War in the 1750s. Um, can you tell us a little bit about their background up until the point when they meet? Sure, and that is critical, that they have this already working relationship before the revolution. Didn't just start then. They knew each other during the French and Indian War. Indeed, they were important players. What had basically happened is, take Washington first, for example. Uh, we, we, we know his role. The received wisdom knows more about him in the French and Indian War than it does Franklin, even though Franklin had at least as important a role in the French and Indian War, probably bigger than Washington. But Washington had um, been fortuitous in the he was always fortuitous in the deaths of family members and his brother. His, his father had died and passed Mount Vernon on to his oldest son. And back then in Virginia, uh, everything went to the oldest son, basically. So Washington, as the third son, actually by a second wife even, was going to have to make it on his own. Though he got along well with Lawrence Washington, his older brother. His older brothers inherited, not only had inherited Mount Vernon, but he was the leader of the militia, the army, the, the, the troops of Virginia. He had been, he had served in the war um, with Spain as part of the English forces and had been involved in some battles. And when he came back, he was in charge of the Virginia militia. Now, what happens is, is, is Lawrence dies and his, the intervening brother had died. And that meant Mount Vernon went to Washington or was going to go to Washington. And he also passed on to take over the militia. Uh, actually, it was a little more complicated than that, but he was in line to be head of the militia as well, even though he didn't have the war experience that his, his brother had had. And so when the French and Indian War came, he was number two and number one died quickly. And he, had, he was involved in many ways. He, was, he became famous during the uh, French and Indian War. It all started under his watch. He, he went up north to... The French and Indian War basically was fought, started in, in the Ohio, what's known as the Ohio country. And that's the Ohio River Valley around Pittsburgh, basically from the Great Lakes in through eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania, down into what's now West Virginia, down towards Cincinnati, sort of a, 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 a cut of land in there. Because the French, the, the French moved in. The French moved in in the early 
uh, 1750s to claim that land. That created a direct conflict because the Ameri- the English colonies on the east coast of America claimed that land going back. In particular, the area around Pittsburgh was actually claimed by two colonies because of the, the poorly written colonial uh, charters. Both Virginia claimed going at an angle up from the, the, the Potomac and Pennsylvania claimed going straight back. And though they had conflicting claims to the what's known as the Ohio country. So when the French move in, now you have war. And Washington had moved up to defend it on behalf of Virginia. And he acted rather rashly at, the, at, at Fort Necessity, and but he'd written up a journal. And he'd gotten a name, not only in America, but in Europe, uh, as from the, the frontier activities during the French and Indian War. And he's involved in the, the, the attack uh, when the British finally send troops over, um, the attack on, uh, on Fort Duquesne, which became Fort Pitt, uh, Pittsburgh. Now, simultaneously, Ben Franklin had worked his way up from nothing. He was an immigrant to Pennsylvania. He'd come from Boston where he was an indentured servant. He fled his indentured servitude. He was very bright, very quick. He was a, he'd been indentured to his brother as a, as a printer and escaped that from Boston. So he knew printing and he established a printing shop in Philadelphia. And because there was a need of one there, he tried New York first and he rose up within Pennsylvania society. He made a lot of money. He was very successful. He, when he made enough money, he moved into public service. He got elected to the state legislature. And basically, by dint of his economic success and his brilliance, he also did side things. He invented things like the Franklin stove, and he developed the modern theory of electricity, uh, which made him worldwide famous for that work. And when the French and Indian War came, it was a puzzle for the for the Pennsylvania, because there were three factions in Pennsylvania. They're the Quakers who live there, and they won't fight. And you've got the proprietors, the descendants of the Penn family, who won't pay for a fight. And then you've got everybody else. And Franklin, who was a leading legislator, was a leader of that faction. So he is made in charge of the militia. When the war comes, He's put in charge of the militia. So he's in charge. He's a colonel in charge of the Pennsylvania militia. And Washington's in charge of the Virginia militia. And they have overlapping claims in the West. So naturally, they work together. They meet often. They work together. They work with Edward Braddock for his March West. Both of them tell him, don't do it. You'll get cut to pieces by these French and Native Americans. Uh, Braddock went ahead. He says, well, maybe they'll cut you guys to pieces. You're a little malicious, but they won't take on us British folks. Needless to say, they cut him to pieces. And um, so uh, Franklin helped organize that whole expedition. He provided all the wagons. He also developed, he was very good as a military leader. He developed a line of forts that protected the settled areas of Pennsylvania. He built them. He went out with the troops. Meanwhile, Washington was doing similar things, not quite as successfully in Virginia, but he was younger. He was learning. And he went with Braddock on this awful thing, and he... And he was the leading surviving officer by the time everybody else was killed to bring people back. And so they worked together throughout that whole ordeal. Meanwhile, both of them come to realize these colonies have got to work together. And uh, Franklin devised his, his Albany Plan of Union, 
which was a predecessor to what becomes the Constitution. He realizes these colonies shouldn't be independent colonies totally. They should work together on on commerce, interstate commerce, intercolonial commerce, international commerce. They should have power to tax. They should have military. They should all these things that end up being in the Constitution. Washington, seeing all the mess of Braddock, and he realizes the colonies have to work together too. So they both become supporters of Union. Uh, they grow to admire each other at that time. They develop a relationship to their meetings. And so they have all that behind them. They also learned to distrust the British. They saw the British, you know, wouldn't support the colonies, you know, except for their own gain. They took, they, both Franklin and Washington were absolutely committed that the future of America was on the frontier. They both invested in the frontier, but they also thought that's what made America different, what made America free. And they were, they came to realize that British wanted to keep America dependent. They wanted to keep us on the West Coast. They're going to block us, as they did with the proclamation of, of 1763, block the frontier after they win the French and Indian War, thanks to American help. They also feel slighted, belittled by the British officers who don't know what they're doing. And they all, from the experience of Braddock's defeat, they become convinced that these British, you know, they may think they're pretty good, but they can be beaten in America. So. Franklin and Washington brought similar lessons, similar concerns, and similar sense that they were Americans committed to union from the French and Indian War. And when the relationship collapses in 1775, they're Johnny on the spot at the Second Continental Congress representing their respective colonies with very similar goals. So having this experience of having worked with the British in the French and Indian War and, and identifying these, these issues between being colonial subjects and, and the British home country, um, as they start to take up their leadership roles at the beginning of the independence movement, uh, Franklin in diplomacy and Washington in the military, uh, how were these two celebrities, for lack of a better word, how, how were they viewed by their peers going into the independence movement? Well, they were viewed as the as the key movers. Uh, maybe John Hancock because of his wealth, maybe Robert Morris because of their wealth. But when the delegates went to the Second Continental Congress, the two superstars were Franklin and Washington, above everybody else. And you can tell that because of what they get appointed to. The two of them get appointed to everything literally everything because Washington hasn't gone off to war yet um, when they they go to the convent they go to the um, second Continent, uh, second Continental Congress and they get appointed to all the military both of them because they they have the most military experience of anybody everybody knows that so they get appointed to all the military committees they get appointed to mo Franklin gets appointed to all the diplomatic committees Washington gets appointed to many of them because he had been over to England as the colonial representative, originally just from Virginia, uh, just from Pennsylvania, but by the time it was over, starting in uh, about 1760, by the time it was over, he was, you know, five different colonies that had, had, had hired him as their representative in, in London. So he knew all the players, and so he had the diplomatic skills. Um, so he would get the diplomatic committee, the secret, uh, Committee on Foreign Affairs, the Secret Committee on trying to raise money overseas, the committees to try to get guns and weapons from wherever they can get them because it's illegal. They haven't declared independence yet. 
Um, Franklin also was made governor of Virginia, or virtual governor. They technically still had the British governor, but the head of the Committee on Safety, which ran the whole state. So not only is he at the con uh, the convention as a Virginia delegate, uh, as Pennsylvania delegate there, he's also running the state. So in the morning and the evening, you know, and, and afternoon, he's doing all these things. And the guy's the oldest guy there. <laughs> but he's, yeah, and but he, he is quite a bit older than Washington, correct? He's older than Washington, but they're two of the older people there because Franklin Washington isn't young um, on on standards back then. But but Franklin was seventy, and um, so they're appointed to everything, and so they're working on all the same committees, uh, and so they're working together. And then Franklin, when it comes time that the bullets start flying, um, the Battle of uh, Bunker Hill, for example, and they have this. Colonial militia, mostly from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, some from Rhode Island, um, surrounding Boston with 15,000 troops to the Boston's 5,000. And you have the battle, actually in Concord, and then the Battle of Bunker Hill. They need to nationalize this militia in Creta. And, and Franklin's pushing for this. Franklin realizes we can't have these local militias. We, we can't have these people just volunteers. We need a disciplined army. And so he pushes for Washington, and Adams joins him, pushes for Washington to be the commander because he knows Washington. And Washington has a certain gravitas and dignity. Franklin has more of a, you know, I'm your best friend sort of attitude. Uh, he was a very different sort of military leader. Worked for Pennsylvania, wouldn't have worked for Virginia. And so uh, he pushes the Washington to go up there and he gets appointed in the middle of 1775 and he goes up to lead the troops in Massachusetts. But what Franklin's still in charge of all the committees. And so he's going up to Massachusetts to meet him there. They're meeting together in New Jersey. When the battle comes down there, Franklin's going up to Montreal when the troops invade um, when Washington's troops invade Canada, uh, they're working hand in glove even before the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, Franklin co-writes and Washington strongly supports. It comes out of his state. And he's back in Pennsylvania when it comes out of his state. When uh, Richard Henry Lee brings the resolution back, Washington's there on the spot meeting with Franklin and is pushing it. And then of course, once they declare independence, they need somebody to go over and be their chief diplomat in Europe, which they then pick Franklin. But we have a whole year and a half of Franklin working um, together throughout the Northeast to push the, the revolution even before Franklin goes to, to France. And then the two have to work in a distance. I, I've, I've looked at the American Revolution before, and I just never realized how, how dizzyingly active Franklin was even before the revolution gets started. Oh, he was, he was, I mean, he traipsing up, at his age, traipsing up to Montreal in the middle of winter, that was absolute hell for the poor guy. And With no course, modern transportation. Burn out, he was sleeping on, the, he brought his own blankets because he was afraid of all the fleas and bugs, and of course he had problem with the gout, and he was sleeping on open floors and all sorts of things. <laughs> After the war, uh, these two men somewhat retire what, what do they do um having accomplished their mission well it's a funny sort of retirement it didn't involve golf uh, or playing <laughs> bridge it was an incredibly active retirement during the war they had remained close because the only reason 
Washington could even hope of winning was French troops, French arms, French uniforms, because we didn't have any uniforms for our poor soldiers, French shoes for the troops, and the French Navy, which blockades um, uh, Cornwallis in, in Yorktown, and of course, French money to support the whole thing. And Franklin arranges all of that, and Franklin arranges for the fleet to come over to block him in Yorktown, and he arranges when the troops come over. You know, there were more French, not, forget the Navy, forget the Navy, there were more French troops on the ground at Yorktown than there were American troops. Rothschild. Well, those were, uh, um, uh, those were sent over. Those were arranged by Franklin. So Franklin's involved in working together throughout the war. After the war, well, he, and once the peace, he has to state us complete the peace treaty, which he basically wrote and devised. And the reason why we got the whole frontier was he insisted on it um, because he cared about the frontier just as Washington did. But when he comes back, I mean, retirement, he becomes governor of Pennsylvania. He's, he's elected <laughs> unanimously for three terms as governor of Pennsylvania, in addition to running his print shop and his newspaper and publishing a whole ream of scientific journals and articles and improving the Franklin stove and working on the bifocals. And I mean, if you call that retirement, I don't know what hard work is. And remember, he's like 80, and by this time, or nearing 80, um, he makes Joe Biden look like a young man. Um, and then you have George Washington. Yeah, he steps down from the military, goes back. But remember, he's got one of the largest plantations in, in Virginia, and it has fallen out of profitability without his guiding hand. Washington is a really good agriculturalist, and he had figured out, when he inherited that place, around 1760, he realized he's never gonna make money on tobacco. This thing is played out for tobacco. First, tobacco is an odd sort of crop because of the British restrictions on it, but also it uses up the soil. So he converted his plantation into wheat farms, and he figured out a way to make money in wheat. He eventually become, has, opens the largest distillery for turning a grain into a whiskey in the New World, or at least in the American colonies, but he's he, he's a hands-on. He has to work. This is a, you know, he's got a lot of slaves to feed, 300 if you count his wife's, and um, he's got a lot of, of indentured servants, and he's got a lot of employees. He's running a whole operation there, and it's very, so he is a hands-on manager. He likes it. He writes books on agricultural reform or articles that get published in England. He opens as not only the, 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 the distillery, but a different sort of grain mill and other sort of activities. Uh, so he becomes very, very hands-on involved with not only his plantations around Mount Vernon in Virginia, but he has also, from the French time of the French and Indian War, acquired vast land holdings in the Ohio Valley, and he goes and tries to turn those into profitability. He's got to get tenants to move in there. He's got to clear out the, 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 the people who are living there and not paying him or just moving in. And so he goes out to the frontier. He also tries to build a canal to connect the frontier country, which he's committed to, a canal across from the Ohio River Valley, the, the, the West Virginia sort of tributaries of it, across to the headwaters of the Potomac. And so he's engaged with, he becomes president of the, the canal building company. And so 
again, it's a funny sort of retirement. I don't think it involved any golf. There was some, there was some, he didn't like to play cards, so there would have been sort of the ancestor of bridge that he'd play. Um, and he did a lot of hunting, but he did for fun. But basically, he was working a, a pretty long day. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Edward Larson. I wanted to take a short break, though, to tell you about an awesome website called Things from Another World. If you're a bit of a nerd like myself, if you visit Things from Another World, you'll be like a kid in a candy store. They have all kinds of things in the geek realm, comics, books, toys, board games. They have a collection of thousands of comics that you can pick up for just a dollar each. They have tons of material from both the Marvel and DC franchises. They have a lot of graphic novels. I personally am starting to get into the noir series, which is a line that Marvel did where they took superheroes like Spider-Man, for instance, and set them in a classic noir setting in the in the early 1900s it's, it's a really creative concept beyond superheroes they have material from all over pop culture including star wars the mandalorian witcher stranger things i'm currently eyeing up some of their statues and action figures to deck out my basement for the next time my DD group comes over they also have some really cool apparel they have a line of Mandalorian shirts, one with Baby Yoda, and I'm really thinking about getting myself an I Have Spoken shirt. So Things From Another World has something for everybody. If you would like to check them out, there is a link to Things From Another World in the description of this episode down in your podcast app. And then I also wanted to tell you about another great podcast you can find from the Straight Up Strange Podcast Network, which this show is a part of. A show called Into the Portal, hosted by Andrew McKay and Amber Ray. Into the Portal looks at mythology and legends and urban legends. Andrew and Amber's discussions on these topics are always fascinating. So check out this promo for Into the Portal, and then after that we'll get back into our conversation about Franklin and Washington. Hello, all you curious creatures out there. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are the hosts of Into the Portal. If you like myths, legends, history with a paranormal twist, join us every week as we explore lesser-known mysteries of our world and beyond. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and all other major podcast platforms, and at intotheportal.com, your gateway to the bizarre. The only question is, do you dare peer into the portal? that he did for fun. But basically, he was working a, a pretty long day. So the word retirement, uh, definitely not appropriate in, in this case. But in 1787, uh, both Benjamin Franklin and George Washington are asked to step back into public life. Um, well, as you mentioned, Franklin was still somewhat involved in public life. But um, what was expected of them going into the convention in Philadelphia? Well, they had been throughout this intervening period. Washington had not only had continued to work hard on his plantation, he had been lobbying for a new government. He was convinced that the Articles of Confederation were an abject failure. And the colonies, the states, the several independent states 
we're in an era of descending chaos. And we would lose both individual liberty with which they fought. They would individual property rights. And he was afraid sovereignty all. He thought that Europe would come back and take these, these collapsing states. Franklin had similar feelings. Pennsylvania was doing better, partly because he was such a darn good governor. The state had been troubled before he became governor, and he was still governor at the time of the, Const the, the Constitutional Convention. He made the state sort of work. Also, Governor Clinton in New York made New York work. But the rest of the states were having massive problems. And so they both realized, they both were committed to union. They both believed these, they both viewed themselves as Americans more than Virginians or Pennsylvanians. And they wanted this union. So they supported the Constitutional Convention. The proposal for it comes out of Virginia. Uh, Washington and Madison worked very closely together at that time, and Madison was a key architect, along with Hamilton from New York, of having a convention. But New York doesn't back it. Pennsylvania is the second state to back it because Franklin picks up the idea and pushes it. So they both were proponents of a constitutional convention, and they went to it with similar ideas. They both, the best records suggest that they were both in the room with the other delegates from Pennsylvania and Virginia writing the so-called Virginia plan. The, 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 the scheme that gets proposed at the beginning for throwing out the Articles of Confederation and replacing it with a new constitution. And that comes out of the proposal for the Virginia plan. It's called the Virginia plan because the Virginia governor, Edmund Randolph, formally introduced it. But the best record suggests that it was written by all of the Virginia and Pennsylvania delegates in the two weeks after the convention was supposed to be done, but before a quorum was reached. And they, they met together on a daily basis. They often met in Franklin's home. And they came up with this Virginia plan. So they were co-authors of that. And then Washington's picked as the um, president or chair of the convention. Franklin is um, the key Pennsylvania delegate. And uh, they basically show up every day. What Franklin uh, misses only the first day. Um, uh, which was just a pro forma organizational day. He never misses another day. Washington and Madison never miss a day. And they're the only three delegates who attend every day. Other, and um, they are deeply involved both behind the scenes and in front of the scenes of working out the compromises because both were pragmatic politicians working out the compromises that gets the states to agree to the, to the first there to agree to the Constitution, and then they both push our key figures in the effort for ratify, ratifying the Constitution. So after having ratified the thing that they had worked so hard on, uh, how did Franklin and Washington view what they had created? Well, they both viewed it as better than the alternative. I think that'd be the fairest thing to say. Um, they both had their separate concerns. They agreed on going in. They agreed on the fundamentals that um, the United States needed a central government that had plenary power over international commerce, interstate commerce, 
foreign affairs, military affairs, had the power to tax and spend for the public good, the general welfare. So they believed on those essentials and they got them. Those things they got. Where there was less clear agreement was over exactly how you'd structure this. Both of them originally supported uh, uh, pr uh, proportional representation. They, they both wanted a, a, a legislature and they both supported proportional legislature, that is based on the size of the state. And that makes sense because the two largest states, well, the four largest states were Pennsylvania, Virginia, Massachusetts and, and New York. And so they naturally want proportional representation for self-interest, but they also both view it as a government of the people. And therefore it should be popular representation, unlike the Articles of Confederation where every state had an equal vote. Again, they have to compromise on that with the Senate having equal votes for every state. Uh, Franklin is the first one to realize, actually appears to be the first one to realize that the, the end point is going to be a proportional House of Representatives and a Senate with equal representative from every state, and he, he pushes for that compromise, but that's not what he ideally wants. Um, they differ over the strength of the president. The original, uh, the original Virginia plan has more of a parliamentary democracy in the sense that the chief executive is chosen by the legislature. So think of like a prime minister, which would put, by its very nature, put limits on the governor or the president of the country, uh, the, le the leader of it, um, just like you have in, in England. I'm not saying they don't have a strong prime minister in England or in Canada, but still he has to work with, with parliament in a different way than our president does. Uh -huh. um, Franklin is a big proponent of, remains a big proponent. Uh, his biggest fear was too much power for the presidency. Washington goes along with the stronger presidency, so they split somewhat on that. Neither of them have a very clear idea of how the judiciary will work. Franklin, once there's a separately elected president, Franklin pushes to have the impeachment power. He also overrides vetoes, certain limitations on the presidency he pushes for. Washington isn't, knows he's going to be the first president. Franklin supports him. Franklin very much wants Washington to be the first president. He's a big supporter of Washington. Um, and, and so they have their differences, but they work on it. But because it, because they believe that America is doomed without central power over those core features like commerce, taxation, the military, foreign policy, without those things and the frontier. Key is to have the frontier ceded to the federal government, the central government, so they can open the frontier. Because the frontier was being lost because no state had a vested interest in the frontier. The federal government didn't have a military. Uh, the Native Americans were moving back in. The British never left the frontier forts before the Constitution. So, and they believed in the frontier deeply because they thought that's what was essential to make America. And therefore, overall, they, you know, they had their reservations, but they thought having gone through this, this situation, and I love Franklin describes, you know, the maneuvers, he once said the, in a letter, the maneuvers at Philadelphia for the Constitution, it's like three-dimensional chess. I mean, you know, you have to think three steps ahead on every move and everybody has different ideas and everybody's playing differently. And uh, so overall, they support it. But, 
you know, they didn't think it'd last forever. They thought it was a good step. And Franklin was very clear on the closing. He gave the big closing speech at the convention. And he says, you know, um, this is far better than nothing and I'm going to support it. Um, but um, it's going to be ruled well, he said, as long as Washington's president. That's why I support it. Washington's going to do a good job as president. We're fine then. Beyond that, I don't know. I think the presidency is strong. He called it the fetus of monarchy, the president. And he was afraid that, well, as he put it, he says, this government in some point, at some point, is going to lead to tyranny when the people accept tyranny. And that's a, a conversation that uh, our government has been having for the last 200. And that's what he was afraid of. That's why his famous line when he comes out of the convention on the last day, the grand dame of, of uh, uh, Philadelphia society, uh, Mrs. Powell, Elizabeth Powell, comes up to him and says, well, what have you created? And he said, well, it's a republic if you can keep it. Um, so, Ed, I have uh, one final question for you. Um, after having researched these two indispensable men, um, what do you think that people of influence today, whether they're in public service or uh, active in their community or um, in, in involved in business some way, what do you think that people of influence can learn from this founding partnership? Uh, we can learn a lot from both of these men because for all of their seeming differences that, you know, the one was a abolitionist from the North and or the Pennsylvania middle state, and the other was a slaveholder from the South. But if you really look beyond it, they were both self-made men. Washington didn't think he was going to inherit anything. He had to work his way up as a surveyor. Um, they both were natural leaders. They listened more than they spoke. They readily gave credit to others. Both of them were famous for giving credit to others, wanting to push over that credit. They wanted to bring people together. They were, they were both masters. They were literally both phenomenal for, for drawing people in and, and making them work together. They both were compromisers in what I think is the best sense of the word. Neither of them would compromise on principle but they would compromise on means to get to their ends. Washington did this in battle. Washington would listen to all the other officers before making a plan. Franklin would work with other people. So they were compromisers on means, but not on ends. They profoundly believed in individual liberty. They profoundly believed in people, that people were important, human dignity was important. So in so many fun, they were both children in the Enlightenment in that sense. Uh, and so I think that we need to learn what makes Republican government work and what makes Republican government work. What makes Franklin and Washington such exceptional leaders, but it was true of others like Lincoln as well. They listened. They compromised on means, but not on ends. I think you could say the same thing of, a, of more modern people like Ronald Reagan and Dwight D. Eisenhower, the successful presidents, um, and the successful political leaders, the Howard Bakers in the Senate, for example. Working together, neither of them, they understood partisanship. They did not like pardon, pardon, partisanship. They were approached 
Franklin won the governorship unanimously. Both political parties in Pennsylvania backed him. Washington won the presidency unanimously. Both rising factions, both the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltons, backed him both times for president. It's that sort of leadership, that's special. That made them special then, and I think those traits are still important to make America work today. Very, very well said. Well, Ed, um, thank you for a a wonderful and fascinating discussion. Um, The book, again, is Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. If someone wanted to learn more uh, about these two people and um, pick up a copy of your book, uh, where can they go? Well, bookstores, I hope, all over. I'm a great fan of independent bookstores or even any sort of real bookstores, chains as well, Barnes and Noble. Should be in all those. Uh, hopefully, it'll be, even be in some of the airports. We'll see about that. But of course, you can always get them online on things like Amazon.com. They're available on those as well. It comes out officially on February 11th and uh, should be generally available after that. I, I hope. Uh, uh, people enjoy it. Also, of course, I hope it's been picked as a top read by the American Library Association, so you should be able to get it at your local library. Well, Ed, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, I appreciated the opportunity. Again, I'd like to give a huge thank you to Edward Larson for being our guest today. If you are interested in learning more about Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, Uh, and want to pick up a copy of Edward's book, Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership, you can find a link to the book down in the description of your podcast app. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, I'll ask you if you did to please leave a review on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Look for the show on Twitter and Instagram, both of which are at CMTU History. I am active on both just about every day, and I would love to hear from you and interact a little bit. Fortunately, this time, you don't have to wait very long for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. I will be out with another episode next week. See you then. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.